Evil is a reality. It is the outworking of the corrupt mind of fallen humanity and extends into the reality of life. It is destructive and knows no mercy, and its appetite for blood is never satisfied. In order to neutralize and destroy evil, it must first be properly defined and recognized as evil, because if it is not, then it will destroy everything in its wake. This is the 57th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Isaiah, Isaiah and chapter 5, Isaiah and chapter 5, beginning in verse 18 through verse 25. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin, as it were, with a cart rope, that say, Let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of Strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he hath stretched forth his hand against them, and hath smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Paul, in one verse, in Romans in chapter 12, verse 9, says this, Let love be without dissimulation, Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. The fact is this, whenever God's word is despised, neglected, ignored, perverted, God brings sanctions. And those sanctions take the form of judgment. One of the ways divine judgment is manifested is God brings upon those that despise his law delusion and blindness. One of the misconceptions, however, about God's judgment when it comes down upon a nation is what is it that instigated, what initiated such a judgment? In other words, what precipitates national judgment? Now, too many, sadly, even among those of the Christian community, especially the clergy, think that God brings judgment on a nation as a result of the nation's sins. Now, while this is true to some extent, it is not what precipitates God's wrath upon a nation. The precipitating, in other words, the initiating, the initial reasoning behind why God's judgment comes upon a nation rests solely upon the church and the people of God who have forgotten God and have chosen to ignore his laws concerning right and wrong, good and evil. Judgment always begins at the house of God, and from there it goes into the nation. 
And this is fleshed out over and over again in scripture in the historical case studies, especially during the days of the judges. And so whenever the people of God, in other words, those that profess to be called after his name, forsake God, forsake his laws, forsake his warnings, he rewards them with the implosion of their nation along with its law and justice, which always results in tyranny and despotism. But this national implosion is always precipitated by the apostasy of the church. Once the church falls away, everything else falls away around it. Now, Consequently, during the time of God's judgment on a nation, his true people, his people, his true people, must labor to first understand the reason for the situation, and then, by studying the Holy Scriptures, navigate the situation in order to bring God's blessings back to that nation. This, however, can only be accomplished when the evil of that nation is first identified as evil. Once it's identified as evil, then it can be subverted, then it can be brought to heel before the mighty hand of God. But we have to be able to define evil in order to identify evil. The subversion of evil, however, will not take place supernaturally, where God actually will come down to miraculously deliver his people, or for that matter, rapturous people from the tyranny that abides in them and upon them and through them, or even during the days of Noah when he brought the flood. That is not going to happen again. Neither will deliverance be forthcoming when the people continue to believe that the destruction of the nation is not God's heavy hand of chastisement. The destruction of the nation is, in fact, God's heavy hand of chastisement. Not because Satan is alive and well and living on planet Earth. Not because of some supernatural evil force. The judgment that abides upon any nation is a direct result of God's judgment. Now the first move toward the restitution of national blessing, the first move is for the church to take responsibility for its own destruction and the destruction of the nation. So to put it bluntly, America's demise, because that is what we are witnessing today, America's demise is directly caused by the apostasy of the Christian church. Instead of transforming the nation by the word of God unto righteousness, the church has been transformed by the evil intentions of men as a result of their lack of discernment concerning good and evil. So instead of playing church, the church must once again become the church, militant and triumphant, by regaining its dominion mandate to disciple both men and nations, which includes those in government according to the law of God. The solution is simple. The logistics behind it may not be so. Now the apostle gives us this initial strategy. Romans 12, verse 21. Be not overcome of evil, but rather overcome evil with good. Knowing that the law is good, the commandment is holy and just, we overcome evil with good by the application of God's word. The vehicle used to bring back a nation into the good graces of God is his body, the faithful elect church, which is the victorious church, not the church of coffee and donuts, which is what the church has become. And it is certainly not the church of the bloviating keyboard warriors who refuse to actually and concretely act in behalf of kingdom building. We've got enough people bloviating on Facebook and on the internet. We need builders. Overcoming evil is accomplished through action. 
preceded, of course, by prayer and much study. But action, it is the application of the word of God upon the world to subvert, to destroy, and to overcome evil. It is the duty of the visible church to boldly stand in unity and ethical conformity to the word of God so that the nation in which the church resides can function according to the ethical standards of God's moral law. But when the visible church exchanges the truth of God for lies and perversions, the nation begins to go headlong into destruction under God's heavy hand of chastisement. Because once the church, the visible church, buys into the lie that the world belongs to the Antichrist, and that they ought to let the world go into perdition without raising their voices in opposition, that is when the living stones must cry out and take the lead. That is when the remnant must rise up. So the question we must face is this. What are some of the challenges in deciding what to do in our modern era since no historical model can provide all of the answers? Now, while it is profitable and extremely advantageous to look at the history of the church through the ages in order to glean some directives, the modern era is unique to the past. And one of the reasons why the 21st century is unique is the fact that technology has changed how modern nations function, and by this time, we are so far behind the eight ball that the way back will be long and arduous. Make no mistake about it, this is a generational fix. And so we have to navigate the many challenges of our day, which the past didn't necessarily have to worry about. If you want to boil it all down to one example, you might identify our age as the new age of Babel and the communication technology as the tower itself where men seek to be as God building the perfect beast. But as you know from God's word, Babylon the Great will fall. It must fall because it is within the very fabric and fiber of Babylon that has the seeds of its own destruction. And God has promised that it will fall. But before we contemplate these questions, we must define some terms so that we can come to terms with what is befalling a nation under God's judgment. Now understand, our nation is the church's responsibility. We cannot separate ourselves from our national stewardship. So here's what we know. The normal means and method of restoring a nation to obedience before the law of God is by preaching, repentance, and the gospel of God. The preaching of the law word of God, or to put it in another way, the gospel of the kingdom, is used to impress upon a people and a nation the sovereignty of God, first and foremost, the veracity of his law, and the covenant obligation that men and nations have to God. However, when the gospel becomes perverted inverted, neglected, or marginalized, the strength of the gospel's power diminishes exponentially. Once you twist the gospel message, the gospel no longer holds any power, and therefore it is unable to change any situation Godward. It can't change men, and it can't change nations. Once the law of God in particular is diminished, or neglected, or perverted, the power to lead people to repentance, therefore, then is lost. And once that happens, nations then begin to spiral out of control as a result of the church's failure to preach the word of God, the whole counsel of God, which is the absolute truth. What is unique about our situation 
It's not so much that many of the modern churches are failing to preach the truth of God's entire counsel, but they are encouraging evil by embracing things that God has already condemned. The more the church apostatizes from the truth of God's word and the application of it within the realm of the culture, the more evil gains a foothold. In direct proportion of the church's apostasy is the intensity of the evil and the subsequent implosion of the nation. So you think about that dynamic. The more the nation goes down the rabbit hole shows us how the church, how far down the church has gone down that same rabbit hole. The culprit behind a nation's demise is evil and the willingness of men and nations, including clergymen, to embrace it Once that happens, it brings upon a nation measurable results. You don't have to go very far to see the measurable results of evil. Just open a television. Put your television on. You can see the measurable results of evil. So once the church embraces evil, which is supposed to be the pillar and ground of the truth, where's the hope? Note how the scripture does not merely say, don't do anything that is evil. It doesn't just say don't do evil. Rather, the Apostle Paul tells the church at Rome to not only abhor that which is evil, but rather than to replace it with that which is good. But in order to do this, there must be a working definition of that which is good, as well as a working definition of that which is evil. The fundamental problem of our age is that both the church and the state no longer know how to define evil. They're clueless. What is right? What is wrong? I don't know. I don't care. Whatever. Evil can no longer be defined by the epistemological standard of God's word. No longer do they have a trustworthy epistemological standard to define evil. And once they no longer have that standard, that true north compass of the definition of evil, all is lost. So as a result, wicked men define evil according to their own evil intentions which results in the justification of evil and the legislation of evil. The next step is, of course, predictable. Evil is then called good, and good is called evil. Now, for a moment, consider how evil manifests itself in the real world. Evil is manifested in the real world through violence, hatred, murder, corruption, oppression, enslavement, theft, and tyranny. Evil should never be considered merely a philosophical topic to be discussed and then debated. It is real. It has teeth. It has power. It is destructive. And it shows itself real in the world with real consequences. Evil can be seen and experienced in the family, in the marriage relationship, in child rearing, within the church, in the halls of government, in the military, within the realm of economics, science, technology, you name it. It can be seen on the city streets as well in the privacy of one's home. It can be manifested conspicuously by actions, but it can also exist in the mind when no one sees it. Evil is promiscuous. And it desires to infiltrate every aspect of human civilization and human experience. In other words, it's active. It it has a life of its own. Furthermore, evil has no limit to what it destroys, nor to the intensity of its destruction. It is a comprehensive destroying 
entity itself. If it is not stopped, it consumes everything by consuming everyone. Now in the infinite wisdom of God, he has placed within the realm of fallen man the church. The last line of defense so that evil can be checked and so then that evil can be destroyed. And once again, we must realize that it is the duty of the church to identify evil wherever it exists and then to boldly seek to neutralize it. And this is usually done by declaring the law and the gospel of God. When an evil man, a sinning man, a man who has practiced evil things, embraces the gospel and the law of God by the grace of God unto sincere repentance, this evil then is neutralized. That's why we preach the gospel. But when an evil man, an evil church, or an evil nation refuses to embrace the call of the gospel to repent, then that evil must be neutralized another way. Paul understood that the church had been placed in a battlefield. Make no mistake about it. We are in a battle for our lives, for the existence of our nation, for the existence of the church. He understood, the apostle understood, that the warfare was real and stated as such. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Notice, he didn't say that we weren't in a war, but they were not carnal but they were rather mighty through God, provided it was the truth of God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And so Paul's intention in this statement is to show that evil begins in the spirit of unregenerate man. And this is what he means by stating that our warfare is not a physical battle. But what happens when the evil is so powerful. And when the evil is so integrated into every aspect of society to the extent where the church is no longer regarded as a transformational or even a legitimate force in the culture. What happens when the gospel and the law of God is so neglected or so watered down that it becomes powerless to neutralize evil through the fear of God? Let's ask another question. What happens when the truth of God's word the testimony of his church and the welfare of Christ's people is so despised that it is then threatened with violence so that its declaration of truth, the declaration of God's holy word, becomes illegal, hateful, and no longer tolerated. What do we do then? What happens when men refuse to hear the word of God to the point where their evil becomes so intensified, resulting in mayhem, murder, and destruction of those that seek to do good? What is to be our response then? At this point, should we still refuse to be silent? At this point, should we gather at the great rapture rock looking with longing eyes into heaven, unto heaven waiting for Jesus to descend into the clouds? Is that to be our response? Or do we stand ready for battle against the evil violence that is being waged upon us? Now, whether that violence is spiritual, philosophical, physical, political, legal, or economic, we must stand against it boldly, without compromise, without apology. So how should the people of God navigate any and every one of these situations? Well, the fact of the matter is, the Church of Jesus Christ is not ready 
for battle. And yet this is the question we must face. Whether we want to or not, because this situation we have not chosen, but it has been thrust upon us. And we must respond biblically. And if we do not have a biblical plan, we will be destroyed. So before we can even discuss these issues, first we must define evil. Because if the church cannot define evil, it cannot identify evil. And if it cannot identify evil, it cannot confront evil, nor can it ever hope to defeat evil. So how do we define evil? Evil is the spiritual inclination of fallen man to do what is forbidden by God, his law and nature. Evil is clearly defined in scripture. Whatever God condemns, that is evil. It is anything and everything that is condemned by the law of God, which is clearly defined in his holy word. That is how we define evil. Ivan Alexandrovich Illin, in his historical work on resistance to evil by force, defines evil this way, quote, Evil is first and foremost the spiritual inclination of man inherent in each and every one of us, as if for some living within us there is a passion desire to unbridle the beast inside, a gravitation that always strives to expand its field and to overtake us completely. The problem of resistance to evil cannot be correctly formulated without first defining the whereabouts and the essence of evil. So, first of all, the evil to which we are speaking here is an evil not external but internal. Evil begins where the person begins. And moreover, it is not in the human body in all its estates and manifestations as such, but in the human psycho-spiritual world. In the face of good and evil, every act of man is such as it is internally and from within. He continues, While evil is the blind power of hatred, good by nature is religious, for it consists in the recognizing of the divine and wholly devoting oneself to it. Evil is inherently anti-religious in its very nature, for it consists of a blind, rotten aversion to the divine. End quote. Illin understood that the evil that existed within, as he called it, the psycho-spiritual mind of man, if it is not resisted, would lead to all kinds of death and misery in the real world. Whenever the fallen nature of man is not checked, but rather willfully embraced, and that behavior becomes unbridled, the spiritual decomposition of his soul begins to fester, whereby he or she becomes obsessed with malice and aggressive fanaticism. He becomes violent and murderous. All activities by such an individual then are to be considered evil, and it must be then resisted. The pacifist, however, does not believe in resisting evil. The pacifist quietly retreats into his own solitude while he piously quotes, turn the other cheek. He is then to be identified as the non-resister. In light of this, Illin observes, he says, quote, what would non-resistance mean in the sense of the absence of any resistance? This would mean accepting evil. You see, the non-resister accepts evil. He continues, letting it in and giving it freedom, giving it scope and giving it power. If under these conditions the uprising of evil occurred 
and non-resistance continued. It would mean subordination to it, a surrender of the self to it, participations in it, and finally turning oneself into its instrument, into its body, into its cesspool, its plaything, in an absorbed element thereof. It would be a voluntary self-corruption and self-infection at the start and the active spread of infection among other people and their involvement in its coordination by the end. The non-resistor is actually a perpetuator of evil. He then makes this incredible assessment. He says, quote, The non-resistor of evil sooner or later arrives at the need to assure himself that evil is not so bad and that it is not definitely evil in that it has some positive features. He therefore is able to extinguish the remnants of resistance and self-realization. It is therefore clear that the more spineless and unprincipled the man is, the closer he is to the state of permissiveness and the more natural it is for him not to resist evil. Just think about that. The pacifist is promoting evil. Ellen agrees that in order to overcome evil, there must be a transformation of spiritual blindness into spiritual sight, which of course is done through the preaching of the Word of God and by the Spirit's intervention. But when this evil, when this type of evil is so powerful that no gospel negotiation is possible, and when the declaration of it is met only with violence, where the people of God are threatened with extermination, what is to be the response? I mean, we, not, we may not be at this point yet, but it's coming. It's in other nations, and it's coming here. So what is to be our response? That's the real question. Now, commenting on Christ's commandment to love one's enemies, Illin said this, quote, The mysterious process of the flowering of good and the transfiguration of evil is carried out by love and not by coercion. And to resist evil follows out of love. To resist evil follows out of love, from love, and through love. So if you love, you will resist evil. As Christians, we are called to live our lives in obedience to God, in moral observance of His laws, and to be a blessing to our communities and the world around us. How then are we to respond when those evil villains who claim that they have the right to live out their evil passions by either perverting the gospel of God within the ministry of the church or by legally infringing upon our liberty through their civil office so that we are no longer able to live according to our religious convictions by physically terrorizing us with violence? What are we to do? How are we to respond? Are we not then to resist that evil, no matter what form that evil takes? Are we to place no external restraints upon that evil when it affects us, our families, our churches, or our communities, even our nation? Can we actually love our enemies by placing no restrictions or no restraints on those who commit evil when they commit blasphemy through unlimited anti-Christian atrocities? Can we forego subduing evil when it is present and measurable? Are we afforded that option in Scripture? Does love to our enemies and those that are practicing evil exclude coercion, subduing, or restraint? Let me say that again. 
Does love to our enemies and those that are practicing evil exclude coercion, subduing or restraint? In other words, is coercion, subversion, and physical restraint an evil in itself? You see, that's the real question. Resisting evil when it's truly evil coming against us in violence to resist that evil is not an evil in and of itself. Perhaps another question is by what means are we to resist evil? In other words, in order to answer this, we must make a distinction between evil and the violence which results from evil. However, let us be perfectly clear that whenever there is violence inflicted upon a people or a nation, which is the manifestation of evil, to resist that violence with violence is not evil. It is, in fact, righteous. One of the ways in which evil men condone, validate, legitimize, and perpetuate evil is through law. Change the law, you change a culture. Change the law, you can make evil good and good evil. And that's where Isaiah condemns such action in verse 20 of chapter 5. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness. The hopeful statement there is woe, woe, woe unto them. This divine declaration indicts anyone and everyone who dares to exchange good and replace it with evil, either through legislation, enforcement, executive action, or agreement. But this is especially egregious when evil is condoned theologically, always by perverting the intent of Scripture. Isaiah is warning both churches and nations that if they dare to exchange truth for lies, they will face the woeful end Literally, they will be finally lamenting their actions. Woe unto them. Okay, so how should the church, or for that matter, citizens in general, navigate the presence of evil? Well, first we must recognize that unprovoked external violence indeed is the manifestation of evil. This sort of evil is easily identified as such. It will first come upon us as legislation, then by restriction, then by restraint, than by violence. But evil is not only determined nor defined by external violence. The way we deal with evil when it manifests itself as unprovoked violence must be distinct from how we deal with evil when it is not manifested as violence. Let me say that again. The way we deal with evil when it manifests itself as unprovoked violence must be distinct from how we deal with evil when it has not manifested itself as violent. Whenever evil is recognized, but is not violent, we must identify it, condemn it, and seek to remedy it with the word of God. This means that we must indict those that are condoning it or perpetuating it. And we do this openly, publicly, and fearlessly, continually. We will be the stone in their shoe, a constant dripping upon the head of the wicked. But when evil does break forth violently and threatens the freedom and the lives of God's people violently, God's church and God's kingdom must respond in kind. Much like the criteria that Theodore Beza gave to his people during the Reformation, Ilan shares these directives before we can address evil. Number one, First, there must be a presence of true evil. 
And the way you find that out is you use the scriptures to identify. The standard must therefore be the Holy Scriptures. Notice what he says. It is not a likeness of evil, nor a shadow or phantom delusion or weakness of a poor sufferer. There must be an actual human will pouring out in the form of an external act. So once evil is identified as true evil, it must be then addressed and suppressed. If it is not violent, then it must be suppressed by addressing it with the word of God. Secondly, the second condition that Ilan posits is there must be a proper perception of evil. If evil is not perceived as having any immediate threat, then it may be tolerated. It may be tolerated. We find, however, far too many people, including churchmen, tolerating certain evils that should never be tolerated. And yet they're being tolerated. Usually in the name of love. Love thy neighbor. We'll tolerate their evil because we love them. One example is many of today's mainline churches do not see any threat by the LGBTQ community. But that is an evil. Their perception of that movement is non-threatening, which leads them to acceptance and then toleration. But in our minds, according to Scripture, it is an evil. And it can manifest itself very violently as we've seen during the days of Lot. Another example, perhaps less obvious, is the modern-day fractional reserve banking system and the ability of government to print money out of nothing. That is an evil. Defined by Scripture, that is evil. Now, while this is indeed evil and it does, in fact, possess an immediate threat, it may be tolerated until the solution can be sought. But we must identify it as evil. Beloved of the Lord, America is bankrupt. There, are, there is no money. It's all, it's all monopoly money. It's all play money. And it will come home to roost. Those chickens are coming home. Still another example of evil is the legislation of abortion. This is evil to be sure, since it is the committing of violence to the preborn, but it is usually perceived as something tolerable depending on certain circumstances. What circumstances is murder allowable? And this is why we have a 15-week bill and so forth. Now, this perception must be challenged as well. Still another example is the American invasion at the border. This too is an evil which needs to be identified as evil. The third and perhaps one of the more important reasons for resisting evil is the love of God. We resist evil because we love God. Since God has defined that which is good as opposed to that which is evil, we ought to confront evil as a result of our love for good and our love for the God of good, no matter what man's perception is. You love God, you'll stand against evil. You won't care about what man says. You won't care about the slander, the backbiting, the tail-bearing, the persecution, the violence. You will stand because of the love of God. If it is defined as evil by Scripture, then it is evil. And it must be challenged and exposed as evil. Now, we do not simply confront the evil to win an argument. That's just insanity. Nor do we simply confront evil to change the perception of evil. That is not the end game. We confront evil to change men's actions and to set things right for the honor of God. We confront evil because we love the good and we seek to honor God. Finally, when evil cannot be confronted successfully with the gospel, the law of God, or whatever mental coercion employed to deter a person, group, or government from committing criminal atrocities, Physical force may be necessary. Self-defensive 
physical force may be necessary. There is no law against self-defense. Not in this age, not in any age. When the word of truth and the law of God becomes powerless to resist violence, mayhem, and destruction, it is at that time when physical resistance might be necessary to protect the life and property of the just. Illin, however, is quick to remark. He says, So long as an appeal to the charity and love or the beginnings of rationality and volition in a person plays its role, and until it ceases to do so, Physical compulsion and suppression should not be implemented, remaining as if in reserve, for they form a substitute and replenishing reserve for the main struggle. So we must remember that physical suppression of violence cannot bring about love. It cannot bring about spiritual wholeness, positive action, or any moral and religious transformation Godward. And therefore, it must not be our opening line of action when faced with evil. We must do all that we can to speak against it until it comes against us violently. Because physical force is permissible only when it is necessary. But it is only necessary when the declaration of truth is insufficient to arrest violence. Now in closing, Illin gives these additional directives. First, he says, the one who resists must clearly develop a sensitivity and vigilance in order to recognize evil and to distinguish it from a phenomena similar to it in appearance. It is gained through time, only through the long moral and religious purification of the personal soul, and only through a personal and genuine spiritually meaningful life experience. Now note here in his second point, his allusion to the new birth. The one who resists must strive to comprehend the ways and laws that lead to the birth of evil in human souls, as well as all the techniques of inner victory that the great ascetics and righteous men have developed. Only those who correctly master these laws and techniques will be able to correctly resolve all of the issues of society. Note here his reference to the law of God. Repeating his previous comments, he gives this third consideration. He says, quote, Those who resist must always mentally begin with spiritual means, measuring the external struggle only insofar as spiritual means prove to be impractical, invalid, and insufficient. Fourthly, those who are forced to use physical force should always seek both mentally and practically the moment and condition under which physical force can be withdrawn without endangering the spiritual struggle, preparing the way for her and giving her its place. And then fifth and finally, the one who resists must constantly keep tabs on the authentic inner roots and motives of his own personal inward struggle against evil. Notice his own personal struggle against evil. End quote. So here, Ellen, it is admonishing all of us, to first examine ourselves before we condemn others, since too often we hypocritically condemn the evil in others while harboring and tolerating evil in ourselves. Not only are these directives biblically sound, they are in fact the expression and essence of God's commandment to love our neighbor as we are to love ourselves. Next, we shall examine what we are to do to prepare ourselves against the evil 
by building that which is good. This we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.